Welcome back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Sunday, March 8th, 2015, and this is podcast number 391. This will be the final uh, Bad Quaker Podcast. Uh, If you're looking for Bad Quaker stuff and you don't know where to find it, you've run into this somehow, uh, you want to hear the other 391, there's actually about 400 and... 56 different files of one kind or another. Some of them are listed as podcasts. Some of them, uh, some of them are listed as interviews and some are articles and so forth. But if you want to find all 456 of those, uh, if you can't find them at badquaker.com, if badquaker.com doesn't exist or whatever, uh, you can look on the torrents and probably try to find them there. You might be able to find them mirrored at the art of not being governed, or we're going to try other methods to try to get them on the Internet in a more permanent way so they are out there. Uh, you just have to look. Now, in this final podcast, uh, I wanted to do a couple t- things. I wanted to say s- thanks to some people. I have an interview that I just did the other day with Cody Wilson, and uh, I want to get to that, and then I have a couple topics I want to touch as the final things uh, that I want to go over before I end the the, uh, the podcast. So I started making a list of names of people to thank, and it just got way out of hand. I mean, it just it was crazy. It's like I want to. It's like you know, back in the like the '60s and '70s, there were there was a TV show where this lady held up a. a thing that she pretended was a mirror and she pretended like she could see through it into the TV and she would say people's names like I see Johnny and I see Tommy and I see Billy and and she's using all these generic names and of course you know little kids every every week when the show was on or every day or whatever would sit in front of the TV and wait to see if they said her his name or her name or whatever so um so I didn't you know as I started going through this and I started making a list of people to thank it started getting like that. It's like, I want to thank Janet and Janet, and then there's Janet, and then there's Tom, and I want to thank Tom, and then there's Tom, and Dalton, and Eddie, and Carl, and Jamin, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And it gets really long and boring just just typing it out, much less saying it. I should also say that uh, I'm going to do the best I can at editing this. I've had some sinus issues that are going on for the last few days, and... um uh, it's it's beginning where I'm at. It's beginning to be springtime, and uh, I've never been in this area uh, in springtime before. So my sinuses are encountering all kinds of new uh, uh, things in the air that I'm not accustomed to breathing that they've never had to endure before. And my sinuses are letting me know that they're not too happy about it. I may have to go north just uh, just for that reason alone. So I'm going to do as much editing as I can to take out the snorts and sneezes and pauses and and, uh, gulps and everything that I'm trying to get through here. So bear with me. So I wanted to thank these people that have, you know, some of them, they encouraged me in the early parts, uh, in the early times when we were just trying to, when we were trying to think of a name for the podcast and just trying to put stuff together, to put images together, you know, graphic artists that helped out and and, you know, it was just so many people that did this. My name and my face has been out there. But honestly, this has just been uh, a, a, the effort of a lot of people to make this happen. And in addition to all the ones who did, you know, who encouraged me and helped me in different ways and did different stuff for me, showed me how to do things and all that kind of stuff, there were there's been donors. There's been donors since... You know what? Three months before we even secured the website, we had donors, and and every time that there's been something that's come up, and we've said, "Hey, you know, uh, we were thinking about doing this, we're thinking about doing that," and bam, you know, somebody steps up to the plate, somebody comes in, 
uh, just recently when, when I said, okay, we're going to be shutting the podcast down. We're going to be trying to archive this stuff. It's going to cost some money because we're going to need to pay ahead for the website and we're going to need to do, and immediately people stepped in and started, and I actually had to turn money away because, uh, because I don't want to take money for something that's going to be closed down that we don't need money for. So I've had, I've had to tell people, you know, um, Take us off the automatic donor list in, in PayPal. Take us off of this. And the outpouring from the donors has just, over the years, has just been tremendous. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, and there, there were some, you know, some, some good sized donations. I really appreciate that. And there was also lots of very small donations of $2, of $4, of $3, of $5. And I, I have to tell you, that's really, you know, when you look at, $200 or $1,000 and you look at $5 and you think, well, you know, but honestly, it is so thrilling to have so many people uh, give like that to to something that you're trying to do, even if it's only $3 or $5. And I appreciate it so much. I really do. And like I said, you know, every time we had an event, every time we need to go to some conference or meeting or outing or, you know, uh, meet and greet or a hoot nanny of some kind over the years, all I'd have to do is talk about it and, and people would just, just flow. It was, it was really, uh, at, at times it's, it's been almost embarrassing that, you know, the amount of people coming forward and I really want to thank them for it. Also, I want to thank uh, the folks that run the Bad Quaker Facebook page. I don't know if you, uh, people are going to want to keep it going or if you're going to want to shut it down, whatever. That's up to you guys. I, I just thank you for all the uh, the content contribution and all the the people the, the the ones that did the actual operation of Bad Quaker Facebook. Same way with the forum, with the people that helped set it up. You know, Muddy Boots and all the other guys and and and, and ladies and everybody that helped with that and the people that kept it going. I really appreciate all the effort and all the con uh, all the all the content that was contributed to it and all the emails too with encouragement and love. You know. It's really touching uh, to have that many people um, contacting you on a regular basis. And also, you know, there was there was people that held my feet to the fire that made sure that I did my research, made sure that I knew what I was talking about. Otherwise, they were right there and not with crazy comments, but with, you know, positive feedback. Let me let me just do a, uh, an example right now. So at one point, not too long ago, several uh, podcasts back. I made a wise crack about Stefan Molyneux and how, you know, people in, people in the United States and Canada uh, typically have no idea what true poverty is. And so someone lovingly pointed out, well, you know, Molyneux claims that he was pretty poor. He was in Ireland and his parents were poor. His mother was poor and they moved to South Africa and, and things were really poor. And so I should clarify that, that Molyneux has claimed that he, uh, that he saw some serious poverty. And I don't know, you know, it could have been. On the other hand, you know, I see so much where a kid, uh, amplifies in their mind how bad the situation is when in reality it's not so bad. So, you know, I have to wonder, I'm not trying to bring up an old Molyneux fight or whatever, but I have to wonder if somebody can afford to move from you know, Ireland to South Africa and then to Canada, uh, how broke are they? And, and is it really so bad that you had to wear the same shirt two days in a row to school? Is that really, is that the depth of poverty? You know, cause there's people, and, oh, and you had to go through change in your, in your couch, uh, you know, to, well, I don't know, you know, there's people who don't have a couch. There's people who don't have a shirt. So, you know, it's all proportionate. It's all, uh, Anyway, so I, I don't really want to go into that, but if Molyneux really was as poor as he claims, then that's fine. But, you know, um, I, I don't think it really distracts from the point that I was making with that. But I did want to clarify that, that there is a possibility that the guy was pretty poor at one point. Anyway, so yeah, so I have people that hold my feet to the fire and, and make sure that I'm honest on these things. Make sure that I do my research. And I also want to thank, you know, just the folks who not only who contributed, but just who, you know, got a hold of me and said, Hey, this is what I'm going on. Uh, this is what's going on in my life. And this is what I'm doing. And, you know, truck driver in Canada or farmer in Missouri or, you know, friends and family in Kentucky and, and the folks in Michigan and Pennsylvania that did so much to help us and our friends down in Texas, 
you know, uh, I just can't thank you guys enough for all this. The folks in Scandinavia and Eastern Europe that I'm contact, you know, we've had contact in different ways. I, I really appreciate you listening and your contributions, uh, content and, and feedback and everything over, over the time. Um, and you know, to the, this huge audience in China that I, I've never gotten any communication from them, but I see massive downloads coming in from China and specific podcasts that just get, you know, um, time after time, specific podcasts have really taken off in China. And I don't know anything about the people that are listening, but, you know, sometimes uh, one of them, it was like 10,000. I can't remember now. It's been a long time since I looked at the numbers, but it was like 10,000 downloads in like four hours and a total of like 20,000 po- uh, downloads of one, one specific podcast in a, in, in one day. And, you know, other times when there would be three or 4,000 uh, downloads from China of one podcast within just a few hours, and it happens several times. And then there's just a constant flow of, of downloads going to China. So, I you know, I don't even know what is appealing about this message to people in China, but... You know, hey, uh, I, I guess you're listening. If you're there, you're downloading it, you must be listening. I wanted to thank all the co-hosts that I've had. And I started to, you know, here's a thing I started to do. And uh, I, I thought, well, i got to get Bill Bupert on before I, before I close out. And, and then I think, ah, you know, I really I need to get Davi back on again. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to have Bill on, I need to, I need to have uh, um, Stephen Kinsella back on. I really like Stephen. He's a really good guy. And then, and Jeffrey Tucker, you know, I haven't talked to Jeffrey in a while. I need to get in touch with Jeffrey and I need to get him back on. And then I thought, you know, uh, right before I got sick a year ago, I was going to have Becky Akers on. Becky is just a sweet individual. I really like her. And it didn't work out because I got sick. She had a, a, a book that had just come out and I helped her I, I, as much as I could. I did a, a review on it and I was going to have her on the show and, and really talk about her book because I really appreciated the book. It was really good. It was, um, uh, not Hailstorm, not Hail. Uh, it was, um, the other one on Benedict Arnold. Anyway, um, you know, I really wanted to get Becky back on the show and I wasn't able to do that. And then, you know, time went on and I thought, ah, oh, I got to get Becky, Becky back on the show before I close it down. And then I thought, oh, I, I did almost the same thing with Jake Shannon. My, my friend Jake Shannon out in Utah, you know, he came out with a book and I, I read it and I really appreciated it and I talked to him about it and I did a review for him and I really wanted to have him on the show so I could talk to him about that book. And then, you know, then it dawned on me. I've, I'm just, I just described six more months of programming. You know, I, I can't have, I just can't keep doing this. I have to shut it down. If I don't shut it down, it'll never end, and it has to end. Everything has to end. So I just have to stop it. I just have to cut it off. I have to uh, just stop recording, just turn the mic off and walk away from it. Um, of course, I want to thank my part-time co-host, Kai, for all the patience uh, and all the growth and all the support. And I want to thank Michael Dean. Uh, without Michael Dean's support, you wouldn't be hearing the good sound. You would, if you go back and listen to my first few recordings, they were really bad. I mean, really bad. And even over the years, at times, I haven't always taken Michael's advice and the sound quality has gone down. It's gone back up. It's gone back down. And I've had technical problems. And Michael has been really patient with me to help walk me through this stuff and improve my sound. And, you know, just as a friend, uh, just helping me keep things straight in my life as a buddy that I can kick things around with and, and we can pick on each other and, and just have fun. And then, of course, you know, above and beyond everything else, I want to thank my wife, Cindy. Uh, she has had to put up with all of this now for, you know what, four years uh, with, you know, the expenses, the constant shuffling around of equipment. Back when we were, before we were on the road in the motorhome, when we were in the house and I'm shuffling, you know, as the seasons changed, I would move my office from the basement to the, up into, uh, upstairs into the top floor and back and forth and all the things that had to go on and, you know, hanging uh, rugs on the walls and, and all the stuff that, uh, that she put up with to, uh, to let me do this for you folks. Um, now, uh, 
and this is not totally the end. I mean, it's the end of the podcast. This is the last Bad Quaker podcast. But I'm going to continue as long as I can recording with Michael over at the Freedom Fiends. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to be, but I'm going to continue as long as, as possible. Eventually, you know, uh, I'm going to drop off the Internet altogether and sp- spend some quality time trying to focus in uh, in with my family and you know I've got a grandson now and I really need to talk to him also before I completely get rid of all my equipment and everything I have already started this but I plan on recording but not releasing a series of stories about my family history and about stories of my life and things that have gone on I think that's important to have to give to my kids and my grandkids because uh, you know my wife and I have both have lost both of our mothers and both of our fathers. And I often think how nice it would be if I had just a few hours of recorded conversation with them to listen to. Or if I had some of my dad's stories recorded or some of my mom's stories recorded. You know, or, or if I could have had enough time with my wife's parents to have sat down and had them describe to me uh, some of the aspects of their life and where they were living and what they were doing and all this kind of stuff. Plus, you know, I've had a pretty amazing life. I mean, I've, I've kind of hinted at it and I've kind of touched on it, but, uh, but I've really had an amazing life. Back in 2002, when I was first diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury, and we weren't really sure if I was going to make it or not. We had some pretty scary MRIs and, and you know, some of the brain imagery that was being done was showing some pretty serious stuff. And we didn't really know what the future was going to hold for me. And even at that time, I thought, I, I, I looked back at my life and I said, wow, uh, the things that I've done, the things that I've seen, the things that I've experienced, you know, uh, that's amazing. It's just for one person to have gone through all this. Uh, I thought then in 2002 or maybe it was 2000, um, yeah, 2002 or 2003, right in there when the diagnosis, I was pretty sick for about a year and a half before we actually got the diagnosis. So I'm not sure exactly what time frame this was, but either way, I remember thinking then, you know, if I don't come out of this, if I, if I end up dying over this, I've had an amazing life. I I can't uh I can't feel short shortchanged. I can't feel, you know, that I've been given a, a a bad deal. Uh this is an amazing life that I've had. You know, uh, I've been a surfer, a pool hustler, a con man, a bag man, a loan shark, a drug dealer, a bouncer, a thief, an engineer, a manager, an entrepreneur, a hacker. I've been poor. I've been dirt poor. I've been homeless poor. I've been wealthy. I've been, I've gone from not knowing where I was going to sleep tomorrow night to comfort. You know, I'm in a magnificent, uh, RV, a coach that my wife and I travel in and it's just a pleasure. And to go through a life like this and to see the things I've seen is uh, is really amazing you know uh give you a taste i i uh at the at the age of 16 i told my parents that i was going to go visit my cousin for a few months and that was a lie i took my car we were living in the san joaquin valley in california i took my car i drove over to a small town just outside of fresno california and I hopped a freight train, and I rode that freight train all the way south to um, to Long Beach. And I got off the freight train in Long Beach, and I started walking and hitchhiking north. And I just followed the beaches and, you know, just uh, lived as a bum. But I had a blast. I had nothing with me but my backpack and some basic stuff. And I just spent a couple months, the whole summer, just hitchhiking and walking north up the beaches. I made it all the way up to Pismo Beach before I finally came back down and went across uh, Highway 41, I think it is, that goes that cuts across at um, Atascadero, somewhere in that range. I'm not looking at a map and I'm going by memory. But anyway, back into the San Joaquin Valley, over the western hills there into the San Joaquin Valley, 
and hitchhiked all the way back to where my car was parked at. Now, this is a 16-year-old kid. Most people would call that running away. I had no intention of running away. I wasn't running away. I was just enjoying a summer. I was enjoying the beach and just being free, you know. And uh, and the stories, even in, in, that's just an outline of a story, but the individual stuff that's going on, you know, like swimming out. I had a snorkel mask with me and I had a good knife and I had, and so swimming out and just, um, you know, finding my own food, getting down into the rocks and uh, under, underneath the, uh, in the waves and so forth and finding abalone and just, you know, um, it, it was just a crazy life that I've led. And it's, the more I look back on it, it just, it's amazing. Um, you know, I'm the, I'm the son of an inventor. My dad was an inventor. He was a lot of things. He was a self-taught pilot. I mean, long time listeners have heard all this stuff. He was an amazing man, but, um, you know, uh, my best friend is my wife. Uh, I am the father of anarchists. I have children who are anarchists. Uh, I'm a grandfather of the cutest toddler on the planet and I'll fight anybody who says otherwise, you know, joking, but, uh, he is miles is just, just an amazing little guy. And if I have to wrap up everything I just said, I would say that really and truly life is whatever you make of it. You know, life can be pretty rough. Life can be, life can be nasty. It can be really brutish and horrible, but it's only as bad as you let it be. If you let it be better, it can be better. And it's really what you make out of your life. That's what it is. Um, I'm going to break away and go to my recording with Cody Wilson from Defense Distributed. Uh, I was communicating back and forth with Cody and I was getting ready to record this uh, podcast, and I thought, well, you know, I, I might as well uh, uh, put Cody on. I haven't had him on the show yet, so I might as well put him on. So I, I asked him if he wanted to, and he said, yeah, we had to do it. You know, he was literally at work. He had to uh, go outside, get in his car. That was a trick he learned from Michael Dean. He had to go out and get in his car to to get a little bit of sound uh, control, you know, so it wasn't so so loud and he didn't get interrupted and so forth. Um, but it was over telephone, so it's not the greatest audio. But uh, but it's good to talk to Cody anyway, so... Um, so here's the, the, the phone call I did with Cody and I'll be right back after that with uh, a wrap up on, uh, on this po- on the podcast. All right. And we're recording one, two, let me hold on. Let me get my, my level up a little bit higher. One, two, three, four. There we go. One, two, three, four. There we are. Okay. If you could like count to five for me, that'd be great. One, two, three, four, five. Beautiful. And I uh, hope my connection's Okay. Yeah, I think this is about as good as we're going to get through Skype anyway. I don't know if you've followed it. Michael Dean and uh, Derek Slopey have invented new software yeah, uh, for the Fiend phone. Yeah, and it is really sweet. Uh, and coming back to Skype is just, I just dreaded opening it today. But, you know, we got to do what we got to do until uh-huh. till everybody uh, switches over. But anyway, um, so uh, on the phone with me is Cody Wilson. And Cody is uh, with, um, wow, uh, I can't remember the name of your company, Cody. Well, Defense I've, Distributed. Uh, Defense Distributed is probably what you mean. Yeah. We can, uh, <laughs> do you want to start it over? No, let's just, let's just flow with it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, man, I would have helped you out. I didn't. I didn't know how you felt about your own editing, so I, I would have jumped in there to rescue you. No problem, no problem. Uh, uh, my, okay, yeah, I'm with Defensive Distributed. My audience is used to my brain farts, so it's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, okay, in, in case there's somebody who's listening, and I find this hard to believe, but in case somebody's listening who doesn't know uh, what dis- Defense Distributed is and doesn't know who Cody Wilson is, Cody is the the guy who there was a lot of controversy not long ago where Cody came up with the programming to to make a uh, 3D printer print a a handgun and an entire handgun out of uh, from a 3D printer and that's not in one piece it's a it's pieces that you assemble 
And then he went on, took it a step further, and he uh, uh, has has his company has developed a machine. It's essentially a, a milling machine, but it's like a desktop computer operated milling machine that can take a uh, an AR lower, which is something. Um, Cody can correct me on the quantities, but whatever the proportion is that it's uh, almost milled out, and his machine will do the final milling on it. And this has got, uh, and initially there were some politicians that kind of panicked and they said, oh, it's making ghost guns and, you know, anything that makes it really scary. Oh, it's got a scary name, so it must be scary and it must be evil because we all know ghosts are evil. So, um <laughs> So then uh, uh, we took this, or we didn't, I didn't, but uh, uh, it was taken a step further. Um, a new, uh, a new um, printer has come onto the market, and it actually, it's like a, uh, it is a 3D printer, but it adds the twist that you can put carbon fibers, or you can put Kevlar, or you can put nylon, I think it is the other one, or some something. I can't remember what the weaker of the three is. That's right. That's right. And uh, and so Cody had tried to buy one, and there was nothing on the website that says, you know, you can't, or whatever, or, or you can only buy this thing to make things we approve of, or whatever. So Cody's going to buy one. He put his money out there, and then the company uh, switched on him and, and said they wouldn't sell it to him. And this is like following a pattern. We had like FedEx is messing with Cody. Um, uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, <laughs> well, UPS, but also the yeah. federal government. But <laughs> Always the federal government. Uh, so take it off. Well, Cody. I mean, uh, go, go for it. Uh, explain what I got right and what I got wrong. Well, no, you got it all right there, man. Uh, it's just, you know, this company's been messed with uh, for so long by so many people and, and people of authority that you know, it's hard to it's hard to catalog it at this point private and public sector my you know my favorite episode of bullying was on behalf of the United States State Department who introduced themselves to the situation after we published the liberator the first 3d printed gun uh, of which you mentioned they they announced themselves and said uh, hey but you know you didn't ask us for permission to share this online when you after you made it and we were like oh that's funny because uh you know why do you say we have to do that <laughs> and actually we've we've been in a dispute for uh well almost two years now over uh whether we have to ask them for permission or not to post uh, a gun to the internet and of course um anyone with even a rudimentary understanding of how constitutional civil liberties works uh has an allergy to an authority that can come in and first determine whether you can or can't do something, especially if it's related to a, a pure act of speech in these United States. So, yeah, every, everybody tries to introduce themselves to the situation depending upon the profile of, of what particular activity this company, Defense Distributed, is engaged in, and they try to influence or divert or defer whatever terrible outcome they see, which is always inevitably just related to the common man having access to firearms which I thought, and we all thought, was a, a nominal civil liberty in this country, but uh, in practice is extremely frustrated by all actors of the civil society. So this company exists to uh, to locate and uh, to show who these people are and then to do the thing that they don't want to happen. And then uh, you had problems with the shipping situation. That's what I was referring to there a minute ago. Uh, explain about how that Oh, man, I out. thought you meant... All right, I thought you just asked me to kind of like embellish on your description. I mean, yeah, I mean, so so what's the latest thing? I mean, the so Ghost Gunner is something we created like in October. Um, we had we had had most of the work done, but we proposed it for sale in October, and this is largely just to support my attempt to sue the State Department, probably in May or uh, June of of this year. Anyway, we needed a lot of money, and you can't just get that in donations. It takes a lot of money, a big war chest to go through the feds. So we're like, well, you know, we'll make a machine that finishes AR lowers. We'll get some cash out of that. But uh, And, and that's perfectly legal, like, well, too. There's nothing illegal well, about of that. Of course. Of course. So we were just looking for a project that was, that was legal, not even quasi-legal, that was totally legal, that would uh, provide a benefit to our installed user base, you know, people who are more interested in, in gun-type activity. And um, also have the potential to provide us with some money, and also meet our uh, 
exempt purpose because Defense Distributed tries to organize itself as a as a nonprofit. Actually, in the end, we'd like the government to recognize that uh, you know there's a charitable and public interest purpose in promoting access to guns uh, and expanding your Second Amendment. I know it's a pie in the sky concept, but um, anyway, we started raising money for this machine, this Ghost Gunner, and at the very beginning, we were like, well, let's do a let's do a Kickstarter. You know, hardware Kickstarters are often very popular, and uh, crowdfunding a crowdfunding site like Kickstarter is pretty much the top of the heap if you want attention and the, and the possibility of raising some money. And we didn't know how niche the product would be, so we thought Kickstarter would be a great place to start. Uh, of course, we were refused access to Kickstarter. Uh, because of really more of who the company was than what the product was, because the, the product can easily be construed as just a general-purpose CNC mill. And then we began to see this theme repeated. So I was I was denied insurance. I was denied uh, my payment processing company dropped me back in, uh, oh, I don't know, November of last year. And, and every time it was not because uh, not because of the actual particulars of the machine, which itself is totally legal and totally not risky because there's all kinds of mills and printers on the market. It's mostly because of the profile of this company and with the things with which it is associated. And after we were, after our payments process to drop this in November, I really kind of kept my, my head down for a little bit. And then we got ready to ultimately ship our machine after we overcame some supplier problems. And then I, I just started with FedEx because I thought, FedEx has an NRA promotional package of discounts, and anyway, it seems to go out of its way to cater to the gun industry. So I actually didn't expect any controversy here at all, but I started getting, I started getting like frustrating response times and weird phone calls and emails from account executives, kind of always asking for a bit more and more on the legals of the ghost gunner. And I started realizing within a like a few weeks of this, oh, I'm not gonna, they're not gonna ship this product, so. I got the media and everybody ready to go, and sure enough, at the end of one week, two weeks ago, they called me back and said they wouldn't ship the machine. They wouldn't even give me the reason. Uh, in fact, I didn't know the reason until Wired and a couple other publications called, and they had finally had the time to prepare a, like a press release type statement. So uh, apparently, the reason is, uh, well, you know, they don't know how it will be regulated. What are these? I mean, it's got there's theoretical interest here, so we can get into that. But anyway, yeah, I've, I've I've been constantly through this machine and the attempt to get this machine to people, which can do a legally innocuous thing. Uh, I've been completely prevented at pretty much every important juncture from uh, achieving our goal. And the simplicity of of this thing too. It's not a mysterious machine. You know, we've had com- computer controlled milling machines for a really long time. I come out of a uh, a lot of experience with machine shops and uh, not only in the aircraft, aircraft engine industry where I used to work, but also like my dad, I, I hung around, my dad was an inventor. And so I was around machine shops since I was a little kid, you know, and uh, so computer controlled uh, milling machines are not a vast, new, scary technology of any kind. What Cody has presented with his company is a really spiffy little um milling machine that can just sit on a desk and it can make, it can do pretty much whatever you've got a program to to have it build uh within the constraints of you know of what a, a milling machine that size can do so essentially it's a series of drills and cutting bits that move around on a controlled uh, uh inside this controlled environment in in the machine and it cuts the thing to whatever shape and size that you that you need it and so it could be used for anything. I mean, you could make uh, you could make jewelry out of it. You could make uh, your own auto parts. You could make pretty much anything that you could get a blank for and fit it in the machine and a program to do it. That's what this thing would do. It is not just you know a monster gun making, baby killing, you know, shoot up the the neighborhood type thing. And 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 that's kind of the whole point of this is to say, you know, to outlaw a thing like a gun is pretty silly because there's always a way you can anybody with a little ingenuity can go in their garage and build one but what it it appears to me and Cody be be sure and correct me if I get any of this wrong um it appears to me that this is just taking a point and putting it up and saying look this is why this law or these series of laws or these regulations are silly because 
you can't control something like this. You're trying to go out to the ocean and control the waves, and it just can't be done. The market is going to do what the market's going to do, and all government does is get in the way. So that's my little uh, my little speech on that. But you can correct me on any part of that that, that you see. No, differently. no, I, I don't think there's I don't think there's any correction warranted. I we we add we sprinkle a little bit of um, you can call it terror on top of that. I mean, essentially that's that's the whole crux of the operation. You, you do the thing that kind of proves or obviates the regulatory scheme, but you do it you do it in their own vocabulary. So ghost gun was not a term of my invention. Uh, ghost gun was an appropriated use of a political word like uh their own their own innovation so i i had heard california senate president kevin de leon use the words ghost gun to describe unserialized uh legally manufactured firearms and you know it was instead of instead of taking it as just a bad faith attempt to kind of marginalize and and criminalize a type of activity which was otherwise innocuous to kind of cast you know a pallor over it which it is it is all that i wanted to and, and not just own the words i wanted to reify those words for him and, and this is one of the, the minor i should say insights that defense distributed has, has i think been able to like give to the liberty scene which is that uh you can actually you know your your enemy will tell you what he's afraid of and you can deliver you can deliver to him what he's afraid of so they're haunted by the idea that they can't see with their systems these uh, these guns or the fact that someone might create a gun privately. That's so anathema to them. It's the phantom that haunts them. And so, you know, why not create the machine that creates the ghosts, you know, that haunts the that haunts these politicians? So and you know, yes, while everything you've described is true, this is this is not any different from any host of CNC machines which have already existed, but that it's a bit smaller and there's some there's some novel electronic stuff going on, though it's no different and really no more harmful or, or in any other way different than those machines. The hocus pocus of the marketing is so powerful and so so I don't know like pungent to them <laughs> that that they uh, that they are deeply disturbed by it. I mean, it, it, the package is very apparent to them. It, you know what it enables and its brashness and its kind of indifference. To their fears, um, it, it makes it to where it, you know it is. It is a forbidden object. So uh, there's there's that extra, I think, dimension there. Um, back, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago or a year ago, something I can't remember. All time sort of blends together. I did a series on civil disobedience, and one of the one of the things that I threw into this series that was I was trying to paint a, a visual picture in people's minds. Um, that what we kind of need to be doing is not necessarily, uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily have to go out and kill government. That's, that's not necessarily our job. All we need to do is just spread Legos in the carpet so that when the government gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, it steps on those and trips and, you know, bumps its head or whatever. I mean, that's all right. we really have to do. This thing is so awkward and so clumsy. Government is so, it's so stupid on so many levels that all we have to do is just not get in its way and just do what we do. And that's kind of, you know, uh, when I, when I watch over the years, I've watched, you know, how you have conducted yourself and the, and the type of activism that you've done and everything. And, and it's been one of the models for me to go, that's exactly what I'm talking about right there. Or <laughs> at least that's the public one. There's, there's also this aspect I've talked about of, of people because, you know, Cody, uh, you're taking a tremendous risk. I mean, that's stating the odd, obvious. There have people, there have been people who have tried to do this type of activism, which is kind of, uh, in the government's face and, and doing it no matter what. And very oftentimes they just get eaten by the government in one form or another. So yeah. there's a tremendous yeah. risk aspect there, but there's also ways to do this stuff. For everybody who wants to get involved and do things, if you just use your brain a little bit, there's ways to do this so that the government never even knows your face or knows your name. But, Cody, you know, I want to tell you I really appreciate what you've been doing. I really appreciate the work you've done. It's exactly what I've been talking about for so long that, that needs to be more and more of it. We need lots of that. Well, thank you. I I, I like your description of um, Legos on the, on the carpet. And... That's I, I think the connotation there is 
is mischievous and like in a healthy and positive way. I would, you know, in um, oh, I often cite the work of like John Bocher. He describes he describes it in a bit more uh, dire terms, but essentially it's the same kind of action. It's that you don't, in the end, you don't have to, you know, radical subjectivity or radical negation or critique. These these things might have been interesting or worthwhile. I'm not saying they don't have value now, but anyway, where where those might have been more valuable forms of activism in the, in the 20th century, by the late 20th and now early 21st, the condensation of power in these, you know, five-eye systems is so total. And the function, like just the absolutist function of government now, even in the name of democracy, but especially after its, you know, its real expense, is so complete that we need to we need to bid or overbid or challenge or invite this power into kind of working it, its own forces on it on itself. And so I'm I'm trying to get back to your Legos on the carpet description. I would I would basically describe it very similarly. If you can if you can have a tool like a ghost gunner, or you know the whole idea that a, a new phase of technology like 3D printing must now be you know, suspect and must now be, you know, discriminated against or investigated by all relevant levels of authority. If you can interrupt or, or challenge that power to come back and investigate its own superstructure that it's that it itself has built up, this is this is an impossible challenge, which which almost bids it to uh, exhaustion or suicide. I mean, ultimately, if uh, if every if every significant 3D printer is also capable of producing firearms you understand like the gridlock upon which a productivist narrative or productivist ethic runs into like a a surveillance ethic. I mean, the the two lock and this becomes extremely expensive and devastating to a force, which otherwise just demands the smooth functioning of power and capital. You know, know, um, I think I've described in, in many words, very very awkwardly what you've described by just saying, you know, casting Legos on the carpet. <laughs> um, something that I've been saying, I guess, since the late 70s, um, in taking this into a totally different field of things that are forbidden by those uh, who claim to have authority, uh, in the in the uh, fight for marijuana legalization and then that whole realm uh, I was an activist in that back into the 70s. And my argument back then was, you know, I think this dawned on me actually about 78 or 79, the futility of trying to get laws changed. And I realized that what we really needed to do, and I'm not doing this now because I'm not a marijuana user and, I, you know, it doesn't affect me one way or the other now. Sure. But back then I thought, you know, what we need to do is we need to create a hybrid uh, crossbreed marijuana in such a way that we create a hybrid that is like, um, uh, you know, it's like dandelions. It's like it reseeds itself very aggressively. Even if the potency is weak, um, we need something that will reseed itself aggressively and then spread it between the, in the middle, in the, uh, uh, the section, the medium section, median section between freeways. Just spread that stuff everywhere. In every city park, in every, you know, in every government, in every state park, in every federal park, just spread these seeds all over the place so that marijuana is growing like dandelions to the point of where it's ludicrous to outlaw it. Because, you know, how can you outlaw something that springs up in your yard and you have to mow it down all the time? And that's kind of the way. Exactly. That's the way with, with what you're doing. It's like what you're trying to do is make those seeds like dandelion. You're trying to just put it out there to the point of where the idea of government outlawing something and forbidding you from having it becomes utterly ridiculous. I that well said it. And and also there there's this there's this uh what's described as a fatal dimension to it, which is you know the more you know imagine imagine government crews whacking these this, this virulent weed strain down by by the highway, you know, spreading the seeds. I mean, there's an aspect of of virality here, and and an interstitial kind of I don't know, kind of subversion. That like, you know, the more you cut it down, the more it has the potential to spread, and and then now it, it begins to affect and colonize the other the otherwise law abiding person's <laughs> property, and, and you know, now it's like people, and and we can take the analogy back into 3D printing, right? Like people who never wanted 
to have the FBI look at them now because they run an expensive type of 3D printer are now cast into suspicion. You know, <laughs> you can't. You, you begin to infect entire networks because they're and because they're linked. You know, not everyone gets thrown into it, and and this becomes an overwhelming challenge for a power which otherwise wants to operate uh, kind of below the radar and outside of certain people's lives now it has to more operate more publicly within everyone's lives if it needs if it wants to achieve the effect it wants to achieve same thing you're trying to get there with the with the, the virulent weed idea exactly you, you these are these are seductive intuitions that uh, you, you begin to attract the power structure into conditions which are basically final conditions which uh, end up obviating or blunting it severely uh, in, in its own backlash, you know, it, it kind of automates the, the backlash against that power. I think these are real intuitions for a new or at least uh, needed form of libertarian activism. Well, I probably should let you go. I really appreciate you uh, taking a time out of your day today to talk to me. This is going to be on our uh, the last Bad Quaker podcast uh so uh, I, I specifically, for the listeners out there, I specifically wanted to get a chance to uh, bring Cody on. I've never had him on the show before. Um, he and I have been on The Fiends together, but I've never had him on The Bad Quaker Show. So I wanted to have him on, and this was the opportunity, and, and now I get to put him on the final show. And, uh, uh, Cody, I really, <laughs> I'm honored to have you on my final podcast, and I, I'm just so happy that you're doing what you're doing and I want to encourage you to stay safe as much as, you know, reasonably possible while you're still doing this. And, uh, I want to just tell you, you know, how much I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, well, the honor is mine. And, um, you know, we've only just, we were just getting going, man. You, you only really just whetted our appetites. I think, I think we could have gone, we've, we've got to, we've got to keep talking, man. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's definitely schedule, let's definitely schedule the continuance of this conversation. I mean, from just this brief conversation, and this is, uh, the audience should know, this is really the first time we've been engaged together. I can tell, man, you, you know how to think, capital E, evil, and that is what's required of us. And I want to talk more to you, man. <laughs> okay, I hope you enjoyed that uh, talk I had with Cody Wilson. He's a great guy. I really appreciate Cody and his work. Um, so i got a couple things I want to touch before I end this. Uh, one thing is, you know, uh, I've tried to make uh, current events always slip into things like this, but I've tried to make the Bad Quaker podcast sort of a, a not news specific, not very time um, time specific. I've wanted to make it so that it, it would make sense if people heard it later. Um, right now, there's a thing that I I don't think I've addressed it on the podcast and I did I didn't want to let this opportunity get by without saying something about it. And so in a few years this may not matter at all. It may be completely beside the point. But I'd like to go on record as saying this. Right now it's a, a fad. It's a current fad to put cameras on cops. They're hanging them actually on the cops uniform or they're putting them on their you know their helmet or whatever. And it's it's a fad. That's all that it is. Um, people are all giddy about this and they want cops to wear cameras and, you know, uh, people in the so-called liberty movement and so-called libertarians and all these people, they're all excited because cops are wearing cameras more and more and they think this is going to do something. But folks, I'm telling you, it means absolutely nothing. What if they do? What if they do? What if they put a camera on every single cop? Is it going to change the nature of what a cop is? Is it going to change the nature of the function that they serve? Because what what do they do? Cops are here to enforce the will of the elite, and that is it. They do not protect and serve you from squat. They protect and serve the elite, the lawmakers, the owners of society, the state. They are They are nothing more than that. They are domestic military. That's all cops are. That's all they've ever been. And hanging a camera on them won't do one thing. If if you think it's going to do something, just think about it for a second. Um, so if, uh, let's say, they put cameras on everybody and one in 500 cop brutality cases ends up in a conviction of a cop because of a cop cam, so what? It didn't change the overall picture of anything. It may have made that one situation better, but the overall thing didn't change. It's like, oh, I've got this huge cancerous tumor in my lung, so we're going to cut out one tiny little uh, piece of it and leave all the rest and pretend I'm better. 
That's what we're talking about. You know, it's an old Nazi thing. The Nazis would have no problem at all shooting one of their own in order to make a point or in order to, you know, if there were two Nazi spies and one of them got busted, one Nazi spy would shoot the other to show his loyalty rather than be exposed as a spy. So cops will sacrifice the occasional cop to preserve their system. That's all they're doing. That's all cop cameras are. It's an attempt to preserve this hideous system. It is not an aspect of a, of a way that we can reach freedom. It is not a, a libertarian thing. It's nothing. It's not striking at the root. It's a very, very public tilting at branches and leaves. You're out there swinging away at those leaves, but you're not touching the root. And here's the other thing, you know, have you ever seen the movie Running Man? Have you ever read the book that it was based on? Um, in that situation, you've got essentially cops, although they were very militarized, but that's just a matter of time. And the Arnold Schwarzenegger character, they go into Bakersfield and they're going to suppress this food riot and, and they look and Arnold's like, these guys are not armed. They're not a, they're not a military thing. We need to leave these people alone. They're just hungry. And so what do they do? Well, the other cops beat up Arnold. They kill all the civilians and then they alter the video. Now, Take a look at the future, folks. So what happens when they do get to, to the point where everything is videoed? What if every single cop videotapes every single encounter? They lie now about planting evidence. They lie now about police brutality. They lie now. The one cop will lie to cover the other. Police chiefs will lie to cover the cops underneath them. Why do you think they wouldn't alter a video? You know, video is not that hard to... To, uh, to manipulate. I've looked at videos that actually had flying dragons and wizards and tiny little guys running around with magic rings. It's not real. Just because it's on video doesn't mean it's real. And as soon as cops get the technology, they'll start playing around with the video and you won't be able to, to, to believe anything that's on a cop video but yet they'll use this to convince the masses to convince the public oh yeah see we're doing it right everything's out in the open folks taking the state's bait is not an honorable path taking the state's bait is not wisdom know your enemy know your enemy's capabilities know the way your enemy fights and do not fight your enemy according to his choice of battlefield and his choice of weapons and his choice of timing. Know yourself. No one is best for you. All right. So hopefully I've put that to rest. Now, this next thing is really touchy with some people. But I've skirted around this and I've dodged it and I've played around it. And here on this last podcast, I, I'm going to take it on. That is the King James Bible, King James Version or KJV. And to some Christians specifically, it is literally blasphemous to say anything negative about the King James Version of the Bible. But folks, let me just tell you, and, and let me say this, I own several King James Versions the one that I've read most, I've had, I've got several Bibles that I've written, that I've read so much that they are literally falling apart. Uh, the one that I've read the most, which when I bought it, it was an extremely expensive Bible. I could barely afford it, but I wanted to get one that was, you know, bound enough. Well, I had already worn out a couple and I wanted to get one that was well bound so that it would last and that I would have it. And I've worn it out too. I've literally broken it down. So I appreciate the language structure. I appreciate the beauty and the poetry of the King James Version Bible. But you have to understand, it is literally a government-assembled, government-approved version. It is not a direct translation as it claims in the beginning. It is a paraphrased version. It is not a direct translation. It's just not. That's a lie. If the U.S. Department of Education produced a Bible today, would you place your faith in it and teach your children from it? Would you risk eternity believing a book that was put out by the U.S. Department of Education and called a Bible? 
But if you read the the intro in the front of a King James Bible, it is literally a government-approved version. And this so-called King James, holy cow, do you know anything about this guy? This so-called King James was James Stewart. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and he was the nephew of of Elizabeth Tudor, the so-called Queen Elizabeth I. She was the daughter of Henry VIII. Now, these people, these people, they were bloody, they were incestuous, they were murderous, they were rapists. They fought over and they ruled the governments of Britain during the birth of the corporate age. The very first corporation was signed into being as an act by by Elizabeth Tudor. Um, if you don't know the story, you know, look into this. Elizabeth killed her sister, Mary, Queen of Scots. And then kept the son, kept James, James Stewart, kept him alive as a toy until it was time and kept her people controlling him. And, you know, there's some really nasty stories that involve his childhood. It's just, it's really disgusting. And you trust these people with your faith? Really? I mean, think about that. Think about it. You trust that those people put together a Bible and claim that it is the exact absolute word of God? Do you believe that, and I'm going to try to take this in a slightly different direction because what I've been doing, that was just a, 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 you know, in essence, I was doing some character assassination there and basing why you shouldn't believe the King James Version based on character assassination of the people who assembled it and authorized it. But if you believe that there's a creator of the universe that's all-knowledgeable, that's all-powerful, and that transcends time and space, and if you believe that that creator actually knows you exist and wants to impart the secrets of the universe to us, to all of us, or to you, do you, do you really think that such a creature, such a being, such a magnificent being with this kind of intelligence and power... Do you think they would choose text messages as the way to to communicate with you? Because that's essentially what we're talking about here. Would you use text to to transmit complicated theological truths, truths of eternity, truths of, of the purpose of humanity? If it was up to you to communicate the truths of humanity on to generations of people and you had all power, all knowledge and you transcended time and space and you could do anything you want to do would you use text to do that with? If you were expressing the most important message of your life to your children and that message held the secrets of life and death and eternity would you choose to text your kids that message? Why would the creator of the universe do that? Why would we limit the creator of the universe to only having text as an option? Is is the creator really that limited? Uh, that's kind of a odd thought that the creator of the universe would use text considering that the language itself shifts every 20, 30 years. And it does this in every civilization. Worse so maybe in English. Maybe it's just because I know English. But, you know, if you just look at the King James Version of the Bible, there's stuff in there that makes no sense at all unless you kind of speak Elizabethan English. If you don't understand Elizabethan English, it makes no sense whatsoever. And so here's what I think. I think the King James Version or any other version of the Bible is interesting to read and contains some important things. After all, there's it's not that difficult to show that some of it is at least 2,000 years old and some of it may be considerably older than that. So if I have a text of Homer that I can link back that's probably 2,000 years old, if I can look at the Iliad and say, hey, there's some interesting things in here, it's probably at least 2,000 years old, then there's some really important stuff there, and I should pay attention to it. So much so more with the Bible, because there's so much more there. 
But there's something very different here. And this is the most radical thing that I'm going to say to you today. Our Creator has infused His Word into our hearts and into our minds. And if we seek truth in openness and in love, then we'll find truth. It's not difficult. It's not a secret. It's not hidden. Magical oracles don't hold this truth. I don't hold all this truth. But it's there. It's in the heart. And it's available. That's how our Creator speaks truth to us. Not through a text message that has to be sent from one scholar to another and authorized by a king and passed down by a bishop. That's not how truth is passed on. Truth is in your heart. There's a... um, There's an old Quaker song, and I'm not going to bore you by singing it to you, but I do want to read the words really quick for you here before I wrap this up. It goes, um, There's a light that is shining in the heart of all men. It's a light that was shining when the world began. There's a light that is shining in the Muslim and in the Jew, and there's a light that is shining, friend, in me and in you. Walk in that light wherever you may be. Walk in that light wherever you may be. With my old leather breeches and my shaggy, shaggy locks, I am walking in the glory of this light, said Fox. That's a reference to to George Fox, one of the founders of Quakerism, or the Society of Friends. With your book and your steeple and your bells and your key, well, they'll bind you forever, but they can't, said he. For your book it will perish, and your steeples they will fall. But that light will be shining at the end of it all. If we give you a pistol, will you fight for the Lord? But you can't kill the devil with a gun or a sword. Will you swear on this Bible? I will not, said he. For the truth is more holy than your book is to me. There's an ocean of darkness and I drown in the night till I break through this darkness to the ocean of light. And this light is forever, and this light is freedom. And I walk in the glory of this light, said he. And that's a reference to a a dream or a vision or a thought that uh, George Fox had. So, folks, thanks for listening and for supporting BadQuaker.com. It's been uh, a real pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And now we're going to wrap this up with a complete version of the song Measure for Measure by the band Grenades written and performed by my son Brian Stone I hope you enjoy it 